Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update Lung Cancer Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Sarah Goldberg, and to begin, she presented a patient from her practice. So this is a patient of mine who's a very nice gentleman, 45 years old. He's a never smoker. He was diagnosed after he was found to have altered mental status and was found to have a large brain metastasis. He was then scanned and found to have multiple lung lesions and mediastinal adenopathy. The brain metastasis was resected because of the altered mental status, and it was a solitary met. And he was found to have non-small cell lung cancers, adenocarcinoma. And then because it was metastatic, he underwent molecular testing of the cancer, and an ALK rearrangement was found. Can you talk a little bit about sort of, you know, kind of what he was doing, what kind of work he was doing, his family situation at the time he was first diagnosed? Sure. He is married and has two children, both under the age of 10, I think maybe like five and seven, and he was working full time. He's a police officer. So he, you know, lived a very full life, was really busy doing his thing, in some ways a typical 45-year-old. And his wife just said that she had noticed that his personality was different over the last few weeks and kind of slowly getting worse. And then that's how eventually he presented. So he never smoked? Never smoked, no. Nope. Hmm. And you mentioned the fact that he required surgery actually on this brain metastasis. Once he had the surgery, was any radiation therapy done? He had radiation to the surgical bed afterwards, which is typically what we do after someone has surgery for a large brain metastasis. So he presented with this brain lesion. What else was seen on the rest of the workup? He had what looked like a primary lung mass as well as multiple smaller lung lesions and then also mediastinal adenopathy. And otherwise, he had really no other disease. So really, overall low bulk disease, it was really the brain metastasis that that gave it away. He had no symptoms otherwise. Once the resection was completed, he felt very well again. So when you sat down once he'd had this surgery and talked to him about the kind of treatment that you were going to recommend, can you kind of go through how you explained to him the type of lung cancer that he had? Sure. You know, it's always difficult to give someone a diagnosis of stage four lung cancer, which is what he had because of the brain metastasis. It's especially hard when someone's young and then Lung cancer is so typically associated with smoking, especially to the lay public. And for him, he couldn't imagine why he had this because he was a never smoker, which is always surprising, even I think to people who see this all the time. So I think what's important when I first talk to someone who's diagnosed with stage four lung cancer is that I get across a few points. One is that it's an incurable disease. I think that's an important point that patients deserve to know. But I also, just as important, I think, is to say that it's very treatable in many cases, especially in cases where we find these molecular alterations, like ALK in this case, or EGFR. So I think both of those points are so important that it's not going to be a disease that we can cure from what we know now, but it's something that's very treatable and hopefully he can live well and for a long time with it. What kinds of discussions did you have with him and who else was involved with the discussions? His wife comes with him to most of his visits. I actually still, I've been treating him for a long time and I've never met his children. He hasn't brought them in, but he talks about them a lot. So his wife was with him at his first visit and subsequent visits. And then whenever we first see a new patient, we usually have a nurse meet them as well and also a social worker. So they were in, they weren't there when I was having the bulk of the discussion, but they were in and out of the room as well and meeting him. So he had an ALK rearrangement in the tumor, a tumor genomic change. How do you explain to him what that is and what we know about people who have this kind of cancer? 
So an ALK rearrangement is a change in the DNA in the cells of the cancer. And so I always try to explain to people what that means. I don't assume that they even know necessarily what DNA is. I mean, I think many people do, but even people who are educated and have gone through you know, science classes and things, it's now that we're talking about their own cells and cancer, I try to be fairly basic. So I explain that DNA is the code to how your body grows and cells grow and things work in your body. And when that code gets an abnormality in it, that's called a mutation or in some cases a rearrangement. And in some lung cancers, we can find an abnormality in a piece of the DNA, in a piece of the code. And that abnormality makes the cells grow abnormally. And so I also make sure to tell them that it's not a mutation or an abnormality in all of the cells of the body. It's only in the cancer cells. Because a lot of people, when they hear mutation or genetic change, they think it's something that they inherited from their parents or probably more concerning for patients, they can pass along to their children. But I always make sure to say it's not in any other cells but the cancer cells, so they can't pass it along to their children. It's not something that's inherited or it can be passed along. It's just a change in the cancer. How often is ALK rearranged lung cancer actually diagnosed? What traction of lung cancer is ALK disease? And does it occur in both smokers and non-smokers or just non-smokers? It's found in about 5% of lung adenocarcinomas. So adenocarcinoma is the more common type of lung cancer, and about 5% of those have an ALK rearrangement. And it's found more commonly in patients who are never or light smokers, but it can be found in patients who are fairly heavy smokers as well. So I think it's become now standard practice, and I certainly do this in my practice, to test for ALK in all lung adenocarcinomas that are advanced disease, regardless of smoking history. I'm less surprised to find it in a never smoker because that's what's more common, but I test it in all patients regardless of their smoking status. And I guess we should point out that it's only been fairly recently, I guess in the last couple of years, that it really has become standard not only to test for ALK, but also EGFR mutations, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, in every patient with metastatic non-squamous cancer or adenocarcinoma. And that's pretty new. We actually, not every oncologist sort of has heard about that. So I guess that's an important point because if you don't do this test, then you really are not having available to you a lot of treatments that are pretty helpful. I think that's true. I think just along with getting, you know, the CAT scans to get the staging information and to figure out if it's adenocarcinoma or squamous cell, I think it's equally important to get EGFR and ALK testing. And I'd also throw out there that I think ROS1 testing has become fairly standard as well and really important because crizotinib works very well for that abnormality as well. So I would put that in there as well, although I think more standard maybe is EGFR and ALK, but I think ROS is in there as well. Certainly, there are a whole bunch of new mutations that are being identified we might chat a little bit about, but these two at this point, I guess what's important about ALK and EGFR is we have pretty strong evidence that it's better to start them on a targeted treatment than chemotherapy. That's exactly right. There's many other mutations we could test for. You know, common one that's tested for is KRAS. But with ALK and EGFR, the reason that it's so important is that we have these great therapies for them that are better than chemotherapy in the first-line setting. So that's why I think it's so important to get that information up front at diagnosis. Now, another thing about targeted therapy that relates to this case is the issue of brain mets. Now, in this situation, the patient had significant neurologic symptoms and had to go to surgery to have it dealt with. But do targeted therapies, for example, in people with these kinds of mutations, do they work in the brain? Some of them do, and some of them don't as well as we would like, I will say. So there are several targeted therapies that we're realizing now do have activity in the brain. And some have, I would say, activity in the brain, but don't get in very well. So I think that crizotinib falls into that category where 
it would have activity if it could get there, but it just doesn't get there as well as it gets to other sites in the body. So we find that in this type of situation that the brain is a common site of relapse on crizotinib. So this patient did get started on crizotinib. That's kind of standard therapy for ALK rearrangements. How did you explain to him what crizotinib is and what to expect in terms of benefits and risks? So I explained to my patients that crizotinib or any targeted therapy is a drug that specifically blocks the activity of the abnormal part of their cancer. So just after I tell them about ALK as the abnormality in the gene in the cancer that makes it grow, I explain that crizotinib blocks that abnormal problem in the cancer, so it stops the growth. And I try to be really encouraging and enthusiastic about these kinds of things with patients, because it is incredibly exciting that we have these drugs that can work so well in patients. And I tell them that it has a very high chance of shrinking the cancer, and that it can do that for a good period of time. And often patients live very well on these types of medicines. But I also obviously want to be realistic and not set their expectations too high that it's, and people are usually excited they're not getting chemotherapy. But there are side effects. So you have to make sure to explain that to patients as well. Typically with crizotinib, patients do feel very well, but they can have fatigue, they can have GI side effects. There's an unusual side effect with crizotinib I always warn my patients about because it can very much scare them if they don't know, which is they can have kind of vision changes. They're, they describe kind of unusual lights around things when they're going from dark to light areas. So I just say that that could happen. It's not dangerous. You can have LFT abnormalities, so we monitor for that. But overall, crizotinib is well tolerated, and I always see my patients back a few weeks after starting to monitor for these things and make sure their labs are okay, but overall, patients do well on it. I guess the one issue about targeted therapy in general, including with ALK rearranged disease and crizotinib, is while most of these patients do have great responses, unfortunately, they also generally relapse. How long are they usually on therapy, and what do we know about why it is that it stops working? So usually with crizotinib, the median progression-free survival is just under a year. So even though patients can do very, very well, and many of them do, relapse happens in all patients eventually. And with a median of about a year under, that means that in half the patients, it's going to be less than a year. So again, because I try to be enthusiastic and positive about this type of diagnosis, because it is a much different situation than a typical lung cancer without ALK, I also feel like I need to tell my patients that that will happen eventually, and we don't know when. It's impossible to know upfront which patients are going to have several years on crizotinib and which will have six months or nine months. But I say that at some point, the drug will stop working, and then we have to think about other options. And the good thing now is that there are many options. One option is chemotherapy, and there are other now targeted therapies that can work after crizotinib no longer works. And so I make sure to tell my patients that at some point, it will stop working. We're going to follow it because that can happen sometimes soon, sometimes much later, but at some point it will. But there are options when things grow again. So what happened with this man? So he was started on crizotinib, tolerated it really well, went back to work, was feeling great. We followed his disease in his body as well as in his brain with serial scans. And after about a year, he had two small brain metastases that we found. He was asymptomatic. They were small. We caught them on the scan before he had symptoms. And otherwise, his disease was stable. What was he doing during that year? He was working. He was living pretty much the same life that he lived before. You know, he took his crizotinib. He felt well. Did he have any issues at all with the crizotinib? Did he have any of those visual changes you were talking about? He did early on, and then they seemed to really not be an issue for him. So he really had no toxicity then? No, he felt really well. And at the point that he developed these new brain mets, what were you thinking and what did you do? 
So this happens very often when patients are on crizotinib that they develop brain-only progression. And so one question is, can you treat the brain locally and then continue on crizotinib, or do we need to switch systemic therapies? And that's the situation with several targeted therapies. I think about that with patients on erlotinib or afatinib who have EGFR mutations, or even patients who have progression in another site, not just the brain, but otherwise stable disease. Sometimes we see that where there's progression only in one site. And in many cases, we can give local therapy with radiation and then continue on the targeted therapy. And as long as patients feel well, Systemically, they don't have you know weight loss or fatigue. They're overall doing well, and it's just the one or two sites of progression. I will consider that as an option to give local therapy and then continue the drug. So what happened next? So that's what we did for him. So he underwent radiation to the brain metastases, and then we continued him on crizotinib. And he did well for another few months. He felt well. He didn't really have any side effects from the radiation. You know, one consideration was should we give him whole brain radiation at that point since he'd already had a brain metastasis before, but he really wanted to continue the quality of life that he had before, and he's a young guy, and so he really was not so excited about the idea of whole brain radiation, which can have some toxicities and short and long term. But he continued crizotinib and did well for another few months, and then again we found that he had several new brain metastases. Again, he was asymptomatic, he was feeling okay, but he had new brain mets as well as progression in some of his lung metastases. So what were you thinking at that point? You mentioned the fact that there are other drugs that can be given in this situation. What drugs are available that can be helpful to patients like this, and what did you do with him? There are several ALK inhibitors now, what's called second or third generation ALK inhibitors. And I think the field is growing so quickly, and there are so many drugs now that are available either standardly available or on clinical trials. And it's really impossible to know which one is better than the other. None have really been compared head to head. So the drugs that are available, there's the drug seritinib is available. That's a second generation ALK inhibitor that we could consider for patients like this. And then electinib is also an option for patients. I think the important thing for this patient and many of these patients is the activity in the brain. So both of those drugs do have some activity in the brain. The data with electinib is particularly, I think, encouraging. There was a recent paper that came out that showed that the brain metastasis response rate was incredibly high, higher than even the systemic response rate. So this drug does get into the brain, and you know, the numbers of patients treated is fairly low. But even in patients with untreated brain metastasis, they can have nice responses to the drug to electinib. And so because he had several instances of progression in the brain, that's what we decided to treat him with. I guess the other question that relates to sort of tolerability, quality of life, side effects, and seritinib was actually approved first. And yes. because of that, people were using it, and then electinib came along. But with seritinib, I heard people talking about a lot of GI problems. Is that your experience? And do you see that with electinib also? So it's true with seritinib, you can have GI side effects and LFT abnormalities. A lot of patients require dose reductions, which can help. Electinib, I would say, overall is better tolerated overall. So I think that's also another good thing to think about. Whether one works and then when that doesn't work anymore, the other one works, that's something that we also don't really know well. We're still trying to sort through that. Additionally, there are drugs that look really, really encouraging that are on trials. So when we have trials available, I still consider that for my patients with ALK. But yes, I think electinib overall is very nicely tolerated. And then it has this additional benefit of really looking like it has good activity in the brain. So how long has he been on the electinib and what's happened? So he's doing well so far. He doesn't really have side effects, but he really just started. So it's hard to know if he'll have long-term benefit. But he does have those brain metastases that haven't been radiated. So we'll see how he does with that in the brain. We'll follow him really closely. So let's move on and talk about, we talked about EGFR mutations and tumors, and you have a 59-year-old lady you managed. 
Yes. So some similarities in this case, actually, where we think about brain metastases as well, because this is such an issue, especially with the targeted therapies. But yes, this is a patient of mine, 59 years old, also a never smoker. And she was diagnosed with metastatic lung adenocarcinoma and was found to have an EGFR mutation. On her scan, she was found to have many small brain metastases, really innumerable, but asymptomatic from them. And then she had widespread lung and bone metastases. She overall was feeling well when she was diagnosed, maybe some bone pain, but really felt well. She was working, you know, had a good quality of life at diagnosis. And so we started her on Erlotinib, and she did really well. Her bone pain improved, and she tolerated the treatment well. She had some rash, she had some diarrhea, but those are things that without dose reduction we were able to treat and get her through the side effects, and she was able to still have a very good quality of life. So what's her current situation so she did well, as many patients do on erlotinib, and then in just under a year, she was found to have progression. And at this time, she really had pretty significant progression where she felt overall very poorly. She had been working full-time until that point and really had declined, had lost a lot of weight, really wasn't able to work full-time anymore, and she was starting to have more back pain. Still was able to you know, get around and do our activities of daily living and get out of the house. And But she just wasn't her usual energetic self and really was declining. So that's really when I mentioned before, sometimes we could think about doing you know, radiation to local, a few areas and continuing, but she really was just progressing so much and systemically was declining that I thought she needed a change in her therapy. So overall, how did she tolerate the erlotinib? She was fine on Erlotinib. She had some toxicities with rash and diarrhea, but I would say overall we were able to get through that. And after a you know, month or so, she tolerated it fine. It really was at the time of progression that she started to have so many symptoms. So because we had to switch therapies, we looked for a trial for her. This was before any other agents were approved for second-line EGFR mutations. So we had a trial with Rosalitinib that she screened for, and this trial requires a biopsy and required a T790M mutation. Before you go on, could you explain what a T790M mutation actually is? Sure. So, and this is actually brings up a general idea of biopsying a patient after progression, which we didn't really talk about with the last patient, but it's in some ways pertinent for him too. So with this patient, after she was progressing, even before we thought specifically about this trial, I recommended that she undergo a biopsy. The reason for that is that in some patients, we can find small cell lung cancer after they progress on an EGFR inhibitor. And that's really important because when you find small cell lung cancer, really probably the best treatment that we know, and there's not great trials on this, but what seems to help patients is to give them standard small cell therapy treatment, so chemotherapy. But now you're talking about sort of the cancer transforming from, say, an adenocarcinoma into a small cell cancer. That's right. How often do you see that happen? It's rare. I would say it's probably maybe about 5% of the time. Some studies have shown a little bit more frequently, but I think in practice it's not common. So that's really, I would think, the standard, until rosalitinib and these other drugs have come about, that was the reason we were biopsying patients. So in her case, that's really why I wanted to biopsy to see if she had a transformation. The other reason was to look for this T790M mutation. And at the time, it was for trials, and now it's become more important for standard drugs as well, So we'll talk about. But for her, I really wanted to know if she had a T790M mutation because... Patients with a T790M mutation are eligible, in this case, for this drug, rosalitinib, which specifically, it's an EGFR inhibitor that specifically blocks this mutation, the T790M. So 
what you can find when you biopsy patients is when you look at the EGFR gene, patients still have their original EGFR mutation that they had a diagnosis, but in about half of the patients, 50 to 60%, they also have a T790M mutation. It's an additional mutation. And it's the reason that the erlotinib or fatinib or whatever drug you were using at first no longer works. It basically results in inactivity of the drug and progression of the cancer. So she had this new mutation, the T790M mutation, and she was eligible for a trial of one of these new agents. As you mentioned, another one actually has become approved, but she received rosalitinib. What do we know about rosalitinib, the drug she received, and what happened to her when she got it? So this is a drug, again, that blocks the EGFR mutation, the one that caused the cancer in the first place, and also the T790M. And so the original report that came out last year about this drug showed really exciting activity that more than half the patients who received it who have T790M positive cancer at the resistance biopsy like she did, they can have a nice response that can be long-lasting. And interestingly, actually, the study also included patients who did not have T790M, and there can be responses in that population as well. And that's not really known if that's because maybe the biopsy missed the T790M, maybe some areas of the cancer did have it, but the biopsy didn't show it, or if maybe it works in some other way as well. But the response rate with the T790M mutation is higher and does look really exciting. So that was why I was you know, so happy to have this trial for her, because it did look so exciting subsequent reports, and this hasn't really been formally published, but what the company has reported is that actually the the response rate is lower than we initially thought, and that patients do tend to have progression in the brain. That's a common site of progression on this drug. So I think the excitement over this drug is less than it was initially, but there does still seem to be really great activity in some patients. So the other downside of this drug, besides the lower response rate than we initially thought, was that it can have some toxicity. Some patients do very well and don't have side effects, but many patients do. And what we sometimes see is kind of overall fatigue and malaise, nausea. Patients can have elevated sugars, so hyperglycemia is a fairly common side effect with this drug and a really unique one. We don't really see it with other drugs in this class. So that's something that we always watch for is sugar elevation. And then QTC prolongation can also happen Again, that's not common that it's a significant QTC, but it's probably more than with other drugs in this class that we've seen. So those are some of the things to think about. So we started her on this drug, and she did have some of those side effects. She actually felt pretty terrible for the first couple weeks she was on it. She was really nauseous. She had really significant anorexia, had lost a ton of weight in just maybe two weeks. She had lost, I think, about 10 pounds really quickly and was getting really dehydrated. So we actually had to admit her really for supportive care. She really wasn't able to function. And she went from working full-time and being really, really a well person to declining really quickly between the cancer progression and then the drug. She also had elevated sugars. She's a thin woman, never had a history of diabetes. Sugars were always in the 80s when she would come to see us previously. And then after starting the drug, her sugars went up into the 200s. So she was admitted. She had supportive care. We started her on metformin. And she felt much better. We held the drug, which I think is an important part of this. And she felt much better. She was discharged home. And then we saw her again a few days later. Her sugars were better on the metformin and having held the drug, and she felt better. So we decided to restart the drug at a lower dose. And she did feel much better. The dose reduction really helped. I think the metformin really helped. The metformin is interesting with this situation because it can help not only the sugars, but it can help patients feel better too with some of the side effects of the drug. So she felt better after that. So rosalitinib is not approved at this point, but another third-generation agent, osimertinib, was approved in this situation with T790M mutations. What do we know about osimertinib? 
So that's another very similar drug. It's in the same class where it's a third-generation EGFR inhibitor that is specifically inhibits the T790M mutation. Very similar. There are differences, as there is with any two drugs that even in the same class. And the differences actually, I think, do two things for this drug. Typically, it's better tolerated. It doesn't have some of the same side effects. The GI side effects tend to be less, although you can still have nausea, diarrhea. The hyperglycemia is not really seen with this drug, whereas it is with the rosalitinib. And QTC also is not as much of an issue. So you can have some rash, you can have some diarrhea, but overall I would say it's better tolerated. It also looks like there may be higher activity with this drug. Initially, the reports for both the drugs looked similar, but I think now with recent data, it looks like this one may have better activity. It's always a dangerous practice to compare different trials to each other, but if you try to look at them you know, side by side, it does look like there may be higher responses with this drug. And now it's approved, which is another difference. So it's available for patients with the T790M mutation. So it is an option for her. I didn't really feel the need to switch because she had stable disease. But it is an option. You know, if we could rewind and see what we would do now, I probably would have started her on Sumertinib first, just looking at the data. But she was already on Rosalitinib and doing fine. So we kept her on that. But obviously, we need to watch her closely. So we could easily spend the rest of our time talking about other kinds of mutations and targeted therapy, but let's move on to the types of therapy that you just alluded to, immunotherapy and chemotherapy, and maybe we can get into that by beginning with your 70-year-old man. Sure. So this is another patient of mine. He was diagnosed with stage 3A squamous cell carcinoma. He was treated for cure, concurrent chemoradiation. And he did well initially. He got through treatment very well, felt well afterwards. And we followed him with scans after his treatment. And he was found to have disease progression, both in his lung and then also with bone metastases about a year after completing treatment. So pretty fast recurrence, as we unfortunately sometimes see with stage 3 lung cancer. He was a smoker? He was. He had a pretty extensive smoking history. Had he stopped? He stopped right before his diagnosis. And then once he finished his treatment, he was starting to go back to smoking again. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. We tried to get him into counseling, and we have an amazing smoking cessation group, and he's a stubborn type of guy, so he likes his cigarettes. He did quit for treatment, which I thought was a good thing, but it's been very tough to get him to stay off cigarettes. What kind of work has he done, and what's his current lifestyle like? He had been retired for several years by the time I met him. He's married. His wife actually has a lot of medical issues herself, and He had been taking care of her until he was diagnosed, and then they had somewhat of a role reversal where she's now taking care of him. It's been tough, though, because she's also sick, so it's been challenging. We talked before about mutation testing for things like EGFR and ALK, which, as you say, is now really standard in non-squamous cell. What about a patient like this? Do you test for mutations with squamous cell? In standard practice, I don't. At least at diagnosis, I don't. There's not a targeted therapy that we could use if we find an abnormality. If you test, you do find abnormalities. There are things you can find, not EGFR or ALK, but there's other things to find. But and targeted treatments have been, been looked at, but none of them have become standard. None of them have really proven a survival benefit, so we don't have any approved therapies. So it's not something that has really evolved into a standard practice to test for mutations in squamous cell. Now, that's not to say I don't ever test, especially for clinical trials. So because there are targeted therapies that are being studied, if we look for abnormalities in squamous cell cancers, we find them, and sometimes we can find trials for these patients. There's some of these what are called umbrella trials for squamous cell cancer where you look for these abnormalities in the cancer, and then patients are put into one of several different arms based on the abnormality that's found with a targeted therapy. So 
those are really exciting trials. And so I try to use it to look for those trials for my patients. And so for those, you need to test. But otherwise, in standard practice, I don't think it's really a necessary thing to do. So this man, up to this point, has traveled a much-traveled on a very unfortunate road. He presents with locally advanced disease that you can't deal with surgically, so he gets chemoradiation. And then only a year later, now he has had a relapse with disease now coming back in the lung and now in the bone. And what would be a normal, the typical approach to a patient like this in the past? So chemotherapy has been the standard treatment for squamous cell cancer, first line and beyond that. So patients get typically a platinum-based doublet when they're first diagnosed with metastatic squamous cell cancer. And then when they progress, they usually get single-agent chemotherapy. So that's basically what I've done until this point, which we'll now talk about immune therapy. But that's been the standard. For this patient who progressed less than a year after already getting chemoradiation, you know, I'd have to think carefully if I really wanted to give him another platinum-based doublet if he just received one less than a year ago with his radiation. I may just go right to a single agent if he had already received the platinum-based doublet with his chemoradiation. But typically with metastatic disease, it's chemotherapy, or it has been chemotherapy. And in terms of patients in general who, for example, present with metastatic squamous cell, when we've sort of conducted our patterns of care studies, we've seen Kind of a split between carboplatin with either paclitaxel, gemcitabine, or NAB paclitaxel. Are those the kinds of agents that you think about, or what do you typically utilize in these patients? So those are all the agents that I typically think about. There are kind of pros and cons to each of them. I would say carboplatin paclitaxel is probably the most studied. Many of the trials compare things to that or use that as a backbone for treatment. NAB-paclitaxel has some benefits in that it does not require steroid use, and there's a suggestion in squamous cell cancers that it may actually be better than paclitaxel. The downside is that it's a weekly drug as opposed to every three weeks. Gemcitabine also is more often weekly for two or three weeks. So, you know, I typically give either paclitaxel or NAB-paclitaxel, and a lot of it, honestly, is the schedule if patients mind coming in weekly, which can really be a burden for a lot of patients. So I typically actually give paclitaxel. One of the things you mentioned, the issue about not requiring corticosteroids with a NAB, which, of course, if you have a diabetic or other situations where you want to avoid corticosteroids might be an advantage. But another thing I've been hearing is, as you mentioned, immunotherapy, we're going to talk about in a second, is usually on something you're thinking about for these patients. Do you see any advantage to not giving corticosteroids prior to getting immunotherapy? You know, corticosteroids can sort of be immune suppressive. Right. So when I give a patient immune therapy, I don't want them to be on corticosteroids, or at least I want them to be on a very low dose. Whether giving it previously with the prior line of chemotherapy impacts whether later on the immune therapy will or won't work, I'm not sure. I don't know if the immune suppression is significant enough with just using it around the time of chemotherapy. I think it probably is not. I don't know that that's an issue. If a patient has been on long-term steroids and then starts immune therapy, I would be more concerned. But just using the steroid around the time of chemotherapy, I don't know that that would make such a difference if later on you're going to use immune therapy. So this patient I see went on a clinical trial with an anti-PD-1 antibody, one that's approved, nivolumab, At this point, nivolumab is actually approved for metastatic squamous and non-squamous cell cancer. The approval is in the second-line situation. Would a patient like this who's had chemoradiation now with metastasis, would they be eligible for an anti-PD-1 antibody? For clinical trials, the definition of first or you know, def- second line is usually just defined in the trial. So a lot of times with these trials, they'll say something 
Like if chemo radiation for early or locally advanced disease was given less than a year or less than six months, then this is considered second line. So that definition of what second line is is a little bit blurred. But I would consider this patient really being second line. If less than a year has gone by and he's progressed on chemotherapy, or even if it was chemo radiation, I think that this is now considered second line. So I would say he is eligible for standard nivolumab, even if it wasn't on a trial. So I'm curious how you explain to patients, how you explain to this ma'am, what immunotherapy is and what anti-PD-1 antibodies are. So this is a conversation I have with almost all of my patients now because, you know, EGFR, you only really have to explain when they have it. But this is such an important class of agents for any type of lung cancer that now this is something that I'm constantly talking to my patients about. So what I usually say is that there are different ways to fight cancer and that chemotherapy I always start with what chemotherapy is because I don't know that patients even fully understand that. So I always use that as a comparison. So I typically say chemotherapy is a medicine that directly kills cancer cells or tries to kill cancer cells. It's toxic to the cells. Immune therapy is completely different in that it doesn't directly try to kill the cancer cells. It tries to get your own immune system to fight the cancer cells. And then I try to explain that your immune system is designed to fight foreign things, and cancer is a foreign part of your body. So your immune system should be able to fight it. But the cancer is very smart, and it blocks the immune system's attack. And that's why it can't do it on its own. And one of the ways it blocks the immune system's attack is by putting markers or proteins on the surface of the cancer cells that fool the immune system and doesn't let it attack it. And what these drugs do is block that shield that the cancer puts up. And I think that creates kind of a visual for patients that the cancer is trying to put up this shield to block itself from the immune system and that these drugs basically take down that shield. That's what it's trying to do. And what do we know right now about the activity of these agents against the cancer? So they're incredibly promising in that when patients have a response and do well with these drugs, it could be a long-lasting response. It could be a really durable situation where patients can do well for long periods of time, many months or sometimes many years. And I don't know that we even know the upper limit because patients who are on the first trials are still responding in many cases or in some cases. So I think that that's really the exciting part about it, that the durability of the responses and the benefit can be huge. And survival is better when you use these drugs in the second line compared to chemotherapy. So those are obviously the great thing about them. The downside about them is not all patients respond. The response rates, I think, overall are lower than what anybody wants to see, you know, in the 20 to 30% range in most trials. And we don't necessarily know who's going to respond and who's going to do well and who's not. We're starting to figure that out. There are some ways that we can help sort it out, but it's still sometimes really unknown at the beginning when you first are starting treatment whether there's going to be a response. But I think the possibility of this huge benefit is so great that I think it's created so much excitement among oncologists and among patients for immune therapy. What about the side effects tolerability issues with these drugs? I guess it's really totally and completely different than what we've seen in the past with chemotherapy, even targeted therapy. Yep, that's right. And I make sure to tell my patients about that in a lot of detail as well because it's so different. And there, many patients come in and think, I have cancer, I'm going to be getting a drug that will make me lose my hair and make me nauseous. And it's so different for immune therapy. So it doesn't have those same side effects. You don't have hair loss. You don't typically have GI side effects on a day-to-day basis like you do with chemotherapy. It doesn't typically cause the fatigue and anorexia that chemotherapy can, but it has its own host of problems or potential problems that are very different. So typically, and I explain this to my patients, the side effects and the problems that can happen with immune therapy all come from the immune system. 
So just like you're trying to get the immune system to fight the cancer, the immune system can also start to fight normal organs and tissues. And that's just how I explain it to my patients. And a lot of them know the term autoimmune disease. And I say that that can happen, that when your immune system fights your own normal cells and organs, that's called an autoimmune issue or an autoimmune problem, and that can happen. And it's actually somewhat common that we find that in some way. And sometimes it's mild and very treatable, and sometimes it's very severe and can actually cause death because it's, again, I explain this to my patients, the immune system is very powerful and it could be a very serious side effect. The range of what we see is, you know, hypothyroidism is pretty common. We see that pretty typically. It's something I look for. I always will test my patients with TSH because we see it so commonly. And we see other endocrine issues. It can cause diabetes. It can cause pituitary issues, adrenal issues. Pneumonitis is an issue in some patients. In the first studies, when we first started looking at these drugs, there were several patients who died from pneumonitis, so it's an important side effect to know about. Now that we know it exists and we know that steroids can treat it very well, it's reduced the morbidity, mortality from it, but it's something that's important to know about so that if you you have a patient, you start an immune therapy and they have shortness of breath or hypoxia, it's something to be really careful about and to make sure to get scans and really consider whether starting steroids is necessary. And then in terms of the GI side effects, it's different GI side effects than chemotherapy. It's, again, not the day-to-day nausea and issues like that. It's more colitis can happen. So you can have diarrhea, abdominal pain, which, again, can be mild but can be really significant and require steroids to treat. Most people on these drugs feel very well day to day. It's that they can develop problems, right? They can develop endocrine problems, or I didn't mention this before, but skin problems, GI problems. So you can get these things. They typically are reversible with steroids or supportive care. And so, you know, I think overall, these drugs are incredibly well tolerated. And, you know, everyone's, I think, very enthusiastic about the durability of responses and improvement in survival. But I think also the side effect profile makes people very excited because, For the most part, I think most of us think this is still not a cure for the majority of patients, and so quality of life is so important, and quality of life can be so good on these drugs for the most part. So I think that's a really big, important point to know whether you're treating these patients or if you're being treated with these drugs. What happened with this man in terms of response and side effects on nivolumab? When I first saw that he had this recurrence, he was having a decent amount of hip and back pain. We actually thought about maybe doing some radiation for palliation, but he was able to do okay on some pain medicines, but still having pain. And so we started him on nivolumab, and really within a couple of weeks, his pain improved, which we see really, I've actually seen it patients in a few days, their pain improves. It's really, it can be incredible. But he did really well. His pain got better. He felt very well. He was going to be able to go back to taking care of his wife, which was so important to him. And he did really well. He went back to smoking, unfortunately, but he he's felt very well on it. So that was the good thing. The downside is then he did, was found to have progression. So in about a year on treatment, a little less than a year, we got scans and he actually noticed this as well, that he had this lump kind of underneath the skin in his abdominal wall. And the scan showed this subcutaneous lesion. So we got a PET scan and it had a lot of activity, whereas nowhere else had any uptake. It was just this one lesion. So And we considered, should we biopsy it? Should we radiate it? And we wound up actually resecting it for a few reasons. One, we've started to see that similar to with targeted therapy, that you can sometimes control one site of progression and continue on immune therapy and patients can do well for another period of time. But also we're trying to learn what happens at the time of progression. And so at Yale, we have a study where we're looking at what happens in patients who respond and then progress on these type of agents. So to get tissue to look at that is so important. And so he had this lesion, it was right under the skin, he had it resected, it was a really easy procedure. 
and you know, it was starting to be uncomfortable for him. So now it's gone. And he's continued on nivolumab and he's done really well. So now it's been another six months and he's been fine. He's had continued stable disease elsewhere and you know, he's feeling great. How about side effects? None. Zero. He really has no side effects. <laughs> Zero, I would say. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really amazing. You know, it's something I'm always careful about. If he tells me, you know, he does have COPD, so he tells me he has shortness of breath. I'm always cautious. Could this be pneumonitis? You know, we've gotten a few scans on him over the time he's been on nivolumab, but they've always been fine. Actually, along those lines, we were talking about steroids before. He has required some prednisone for COPD exacerbations, but he comes off of it and does fine. So anyway, he's really done very well. So right now, these agents are being used, you have both uh, nivolumab and pembrolizumab, another PD-1 antibody in both squamous cell and non-squamous or adenocarcinoma, usually tumors. Right now, it's being used in a second-line situation. So a patient who might have gotten, say, a platinum doublet then could go on to this second line, assuming they don't have something like an EGFR mutation. But as you said, actually, most people don't respond. What do you do in terms of the patients who don't respond? So the first question I always think about is, is he really not responding? Or could this be pseudo-progression? So it's something we talked a lot about when we first started using these drugs, because we were seeing patients who had some growth and then some shrinkage of their cancer. So is it really progression or is it not? Is it just this immune flare? Yeah, could you explain a little bit more about this concept of immune flare and pseudo-progression? So the idea is that you may see what looks like growth of a cancer, but could it potentially be immune cells coming into the cancer? And so it looks like growth, but it's not actually growth. That's the idea behind it. And in the cases where we've seen this, things look like they're growing. And then on the next scan, you know, a few weeks or months later, things are shrinking again when you continue the drug. And then in actually in some cases, we've seen new lesions come up and then go away. So this does happen. I think it is a real phenomenon where you see pseudoprogression, but I would say that overall it's pretty rare. So we don't see it very commonly. And I think when we first started hearing about pseudoprogression, everyone was, when we saw progression, when we saw growth, you wanted to think it was pseudoprogression because you wanted to believe that this could work because it could work, it could work for a long time. But most of the time when we see growth, I would say it's real growth. And especially if the growth is associated with symptoms or widespread growth, I think the likelihood is the drug is just not working. And then continuing it can really just be detrimental for patients. But if you know it's a small amount of growth or growth at just one site or maybe one or two new lesions, I might consider the possibility of pseudoprogression, consider whether I want to continue the drug and maybe get another scan you know, six weeks later. I wouldn't go too long. So I think it is real, but it's not common. And it's, you have to be really careful about just saying, oh, it's probably pseudoprogression. Let's just continue. One of the other things about immunotherapy, it's kind of interesting, and when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, is the issue of what do you do with a patient who you want to give one of these agents to who has a prior history of an autoimmune disease. And as you mentioned, there's a whole bunch of them. Crohn's disease is very common, multiple sclerosis, psoriasis. Do we know what happens if you give these drugs to patients with these diseases? So it's a really great question and one that I don't really have an answer to. So most of the trials, actually all of the trials, exclude significant autoimmune disease. So, you know, Crohn's disease, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, those types of illnesses that really can be significant for patients. The patients with those diseases were excluded from trials. So we don't know. The more mild autoimmune diseases, which in some cases aren't mild, but if they've been mild, you know, psoriasis, 
hypothyroidism, those types of things. Some of the trials did allow them. And I think overall patients have done okay from them. I'm not sure that I've seen that seen data looking specifically at patients with those histories, but those patients have been allowed. And I've treated patients with, you know, a distant history of, of a mild autoimmune issue and they've done fine. So a mild autoimmune problem, I would be comfortable treating a patient with an immune therapy. There's a chance, and I would tell a patient this, there's a chance of making it worse, but you're also treating a very serious illness, lung cancer. So I think in that case, you're weighing the risks and benefits and the risk of making you know, psoriasis worse, I think is maybe worth it for patients. A more serious autoimmune disease, now that we have the option, right, you're no longer thinking about trials, we can treat those patients if we thought it was appropriate. I would be really hesitant to treat a patient with a serious autoimmune disease with one of these drugs. You know, I've seen such significant autoimmune problems with immune therapy, and to think that the patient already has a serious autoimmune issue, and to make that worse, that could be deadly, I don't know that that would be worth the risk. For a patient on immunosuppression, then I definitely would not treat them because that's showing two things. One, they had such a significant autoimmune problem, they needed immune suppression. But also with the immune suppression, I would be worried that the immune therapy wouldn't even work well anyway. So I would consider it on a case-by-case basis, but I would be really concerned with someone with a significant autoimmune problem to treat them with an immune therapy. So with the patient who is progressing, how do you think through options for the next therapy And I'm also curious about your thoughts about another agent that's become available that might be a consideration, ramucirumab. So when patients progress on immune therapy, one thought is, well, is it primary resistance or do they respond and now they're progressing? So that's one consideration. I'm not sure that there's necessarily a difference, but you know, there are trials now of combination immune therapy. So if it's someone who did well for a while and now is progressing, maybe they might benefit from the combination immune therapies, or maybe even a patient who didn't respond at all, that might be an option. So we have trials at Yale of combination immune therapy, and I think that that's an exciting option for patients. The standard would be chemotherapy, right? Probably docetaxel would be the most standard for this patient if he progresses, or with or without remesiramab, I would say. So I think docetaxel and remesiramab or docetaxel alone could be an option. But, you know, I think that's a hard decision, and you have to talk about side effects. The benefit is fairly small, but it's there with adding it. But I think that those are the standard options. What I think is probably a better option is to think about a trial, because I think the likelihood of those drugs working is fairly low and the duration of benefit is also low. So I still think about trials in my patients after immune therapy failure. Just to clarify, because, you know, ramucirumab is an anti-angiogenic and we're not really used to seeing people with squamous cell, for example, getting bevacizumab. What exactly is ramucirumab and what do we know about its efficacy and is tolerability. Yep. So it's an antibody against VEGF. So it's similar to bevacizumab, but it's been studied in patients with squamous and non-squamous. And it looks like it doesn't have the toxicity that bevacizumab has. In terms of being able to give it to people with squamous. uh, With squamous, exactly. So it's approved for patients with squamous as well. So in that way, it's different. It also has been studied in the second line. So whereas bevacizumab in lung cancer, we typically use with chemotherapy in the first line, it's been approved with docetaxel in the second line. And I guess with bevacizumab, we saw hemoptysis and bleeding in a few patients with squamous cell. And has that been seen with ramucirumab? At low levels. It's really not as much of a concern with ramucirumab, what we've seen. So another agent, it's just amazing how many new agents are becoming available now that is available for metastatic squamous cell is an anti-EGFR antibody, nesetumumab. What is that and what do we know about that in terms of efficacy and tolerability? 
Yeah, so nesetumumab is an EGFR antibody. It also can be used with docetaxel. I would say that both of those drugs, now that they've been approved, are options. But I think looking at the efficacy needs to really be an important consideration when you think about using them because I would say overall their benefit is fairly small. Their survival benefit is, both of them are about two months or less survival benefit, which I think we used to be excited about. That was really what was kind of our benchmark of benefit. But I think now that we're seeing all these other agents, the immune therapy and and other things where you can really get these durable benefits, and there's been a lot of discussion of what amount of benefit is worth potential toxicity and side effects, I really am hesitant to use those drugs in patients. I think by the time patients get to the second line or beyond setting, docetaxel alone can be very challenging, and to add a second agent I think can be tough for patients.